electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. I'm John Fort. In for Kelly Evans, here's what's ahead. A big week for big tech. Alphabet, Microsoft, Intel, Meta, all on deck to report this week. We're going to drill down on the one name in that group our analyst calls best positioned in AI. He's going to join us with how much upside he sees ahead. But it's not just big tech. We have one name each across semiconductors, housing, and telecommunications. We're going to look at what to watch and how to position into the print. And fighting AI plagiarism, meet the recent college grad who built an AI detecting program in his college dorm room. That was seven months ago. He's since partnered with more than 40 education companies, and he has some familiar financial backers, too. He is live ahead, but we begin with today's markets. Hey, Bob Pisani at the NICE. A lot going on. Yeah, and... What's amazing is this rally that is indeed broadening out. It's not tech stocks anymore. July has changed that whole dynamic. Look at this Dow Industrials here. Is that 11 days in a row? That's quite amazing. And this is because the Dow is not just an industrial index. It represents a lot of different industries that are benefiting from the broadening out. S&P 500 near a new high. 45.65, I believe, was the old high there uh, not uh, long ago. We're not far away from that. And the Nasdaq, for once, is lagging. That has been the case all month as tech stocks not falling, but not leading the charge this time. New high list. I'll tell you what you find interesting about the new high list today. No tech names on here. You got bank stocks. You got consumer names like Walmart and Constellation and Lowe's. You got a few pharmaceutical names like Abbott. No big tech names. And that really has been the story of this broadening out. Another way to look at the broadening out, energy stocks, which had been terrible performers for most of the years, are all showing leadership. Chevron had a pre-announcement on their earnings. That's a big mover today. But independently of that, oil's near $78. Halliburton's been moving up. Hess, Occidental, the entire energy complex. Again, a group not doing very well going into July, all outperforming. So I'll give you a sense of where the sectors are here. This is what I mean when I say broadening. What does this word broadening mean? It means Banks are leading the charge. It means energy is leading the charge. The Russell 2000 small cap has underperformed all year. Suddenly, it is now outperforming. Remember, the S&P is up a little more than 2%. The Dow transports were at new highs recently, up 4% for the month. Metals and mining, these are cyclical sectors. So you see what I mean here. You'll notice technology is not on this list. It is, in fact, lagging for the month. Speaking of earnings, of course, we're going to have tech earnings, as John mentioned, coming up here. We're going to get, of course, the big ones, Alphabet, Microsoft, Texas Instruments coming up, Meta, Seagate, Intel, S3, Microelectronics. And, John, the question here is we know AI has led. We know cloud is strong. The question, I think, for a lot of people is can this AI revolution broaden out? It's got to be a bigger story than just Microsoft and NVIDIA, obviously. And I think that's what a lot of the tech bulls are hoping for at this point. Some of the secondary and tertiary names will also make some positive comments along those lines. John, back to you. Yeah, Bob, we'll see there. And while energy and banks have the gas in the markets today, we're going to go back and see if we should be hitting the brakes on tech, uh, one of the big tech names reporting tomorrow is Microsoft. That stock is up more than 40% year-to-date, currently trading at a forward P.E. of 32. 
AI excitement, one of the big reasons why, as Bob mentioned, my next guest says it's going to be a big catalyst going forward. He's bullish because of it. He's got an outperformed rating on Microsoft, says it's arguably best positioned to become the AI operating system. For more, let's bring in Timothy Horan of Oppenheimer. Uh, Timothy, PE is 32. I, I don't know. You t- sort of tend to like your, your PEs like your professional athlete ages. It's getting a little, it's getting a little up there. Um, why is this the name for AI? Hi, John. Um, good afternoon. Uh, we have it trading closer to 26 times next year's uh, PE on, on a calendar year, but it's a little complicated because of the fiscal versus uh, versus calendar year. But Microsoft basically is becoming the uh, the app, the platform, the operating system for artificial intelligence. They have by far the best infrastructure. They have actually two or three different operating systems, which are critical, but they also have a billion subscribers globally that are using the, uh, their suite of products so they can do reinforced learning on the AI and, and leverage AI, we think, faster and better than, than anyone out there. Now, Andy Jassy over at Amazon would beg to differ. Uh, he, he made the case to us just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, there could be an argument out there that Microsoft was first out with the, the AI wow, challenging Google in search. But since there, we've heard from Alphabet, from Google, we've heard from Amazon. They're making the argument that they're going to do just as well in AI. Uh, does that have the risk of taking some air out of Microsoft sales valuation-wise if they do, in fact, produce? Uh, that was a great interview, by the way. Um, thanks Thank for you. doing that. Um, we think... Um, uh, basically, am- the problem with Amazon and Google to a degree is they've been making their own chips, so they're somewhat competing with NVIDIA, and they did not optimize their core kind of cloud infrastructure around NVIDIA like, like Microsoft has. Also, OpenAI has by far the, lo- the best and largest l- large language model at this point, and this is where all AI innovation is, a- is occurring as we speak. And the more usage you get, the more reinforced, in- reinforced learning you get, and it basically becomes a positive virtuous cycle it's going to be very, very difficult for others to catch up to Microsoft at this point because they're also applying it to all of their own applications. They're the largest SaaS provider uh, in the world. They've been uh, trialing Copilot, and they're going to sell Copilot as an add-on to Office 365 for $30 a month, which is basically a staggering number, and they're going to roll this out very, very quickly. Microsoft also has relationships with essentially every enterprise customer in the world, and those enterprise customers are coming to Microsoft and asking them to help them monetize their data right now because OpenAI has the best model, and I have to go with the best model. You know, it's very interesting. Uh, I, I heard from a Cisco executive uh, over the weekend excited about how Microsoft was pricing that AI tier because it sort of gives the rest of the industry <laughs> permission to go after some margin there and, and to communicate that there's value, but there's more to Microsoft, especially in this quarter, than AI. That's a relatively nascent effort. You've got uh, Azure uh, growth rates to be concerned about. You've got this PC cycle that's been challenged, but we've heard from the likes of Intel that the inventories are more under control. How is that going to play out in Microsoft's quarter, and are investors going to pay more attention to those present metrics than to the AI future? A great point. I mean, there's, this is a widely anticipated quarter. There's a lot going on, but it's a bit of an easier quarter for them. Last year was the first time they, in my history, in like the last seven years of following the stock, that they actually had a weak fourth quarter last year. This is their fiscal fourth quarter, so the comps are a little bit easier. Uh, their guidance on Azure was actually relatively strong. We think they are gaining quite a bit of share from AWS uh, at this point. 
On the PC side, yeah, things are also looking easier from a year-over-year -year comp, and we actually believe AI is going to drive probably a year from now, but it's going to drive another PC upgrade cycle uh, globally to help support AI. But you're right, an awful lot going on, um, but they have a lot of positives. We're going to be looking to see if they're gaining share, share in search. Um, that is also driven by, by, by AI at this point also. Um, but Azure, we, our channel check suggests are going pretty well, and it's going to be fairly critical for them on the market share relative to AWS, basically for, for the whole industry at this point. Well, you know, we'll be following those numbers closely on CNBC as they break on overtime. Tim, thank you. Thanks, John. Tim Horn from Oppenheimer. Two-year notes up for auction now. Rick Santelli tracking the action at the CME. Rick. Yes, John Ford. This is the first of a three-tiered auction process that will start with twos, end up with seven years. The combination will, of course, reach $120 billion. Today's $42 billion in two-year notes. Well, I gave it a C-plus for demand. The yield at the Dutch auction, John, 4.823. Tailed just a small bit, but pretty much close to where the when issued market was trading. If we look at all the metrics, they're pretty much at or slightly above average, and the ones that aren't are very close. It wasn't a terrific auction. It was pricing a bit messy, but do understand, yields have been rising most of the session, along with the green that we still have in the equity markets. Tomorrow, of course, we'll have 43 billion in five-year notes and finish with sevens, but maybe the most important issue of all is how short maturities have really ratcheted up and as you see on that chart, uh, 507 is the key high yield close for two-year note yields. And many traders continue to monitor that. And until two-year note yields challenge that level, no matter how high they snug up, many believe the highs are still in the rearview mirror. Back to you. All right, Rick, thanks. Uh, let's get back once again to the tech trade. Despite most of the sector sitting at or near 52-week highs, most names still have not taken out those all-time highs from 2021. The triple Qs, for example, retracing almost all of the 2022 losses, less than 7% from those records. My next guest says that level can be seen as resistance, and there are some medium-term reasons to be positive on the technicals. Let's bring in Katie Stockton, Bear Lead Strategies founder, CNBC contributor for more. Hey, Katie. So as, <laughs> as much as things are soaring, technically, it looks like there's room to run. The uptrends are definitely supported by positive intermediate-term momentum, and we've seen real meaningful improvement in long-term momentum as well, even behind the turnaround types of sectors, you know, things that don't look just like the triple Qs, but other sectors that had downtrended for a couple years ahead of their basing phases. So there are very redeeming qualities, and yet short-term momentum has certainly fallen off a little bit. And that's something that we have an eye on from a technical perspective. It's not at the point where we're seeing decisive sell signals, but we're at the point where we are shying away from adding new exposure at current levels. So we're kind of at a medium level hold here, not a weak hold, not a strong hold, but a hold. So what, what are the levels that you're watching from here that will kind of get you off the dime one way or the other? Well, for the triple Qs, as mentioned, there is resistance, and it's not until the 2021 high, and that's, I think, something close to 8 or 9% above. So that seems really very aggressive, quite frankly, as an upside objective based on where we've come from. So because the support level, and we're using the rising 50-day moving averages, generally speaking, as gauges of initial support, because those are somewhat far below, that doesn't create the best risk reward, even with the resistance for the triple Qs about 8% above. 
So we're in this mode where, again, we're not adding no exposure with that in mind. We usually like to see a reward to risk of better than two to one. And we don't have that at this time. And that goes for not only the triple Qs, but areas like the semiconductor sector as, measure, as measured by SMH. SMH still has the support of positive momentum as well, but it also faces resistance from 2021. It's right around 160. You can see it, it's a very strong level. But through that, of course, would be a nice breakout. So we wanna be there just in the event that it can break through. Other names to watch might be Microsoft into earnings with the resistance around 350 essentially being tested. A breakout would be bullish, but if it fails to break out in response to earning, of course, that would be a setback. The SMH is so interesting right now because NVIDIA has been this major story of the year powered by AI and Jensen Huang's vision there. Then at the same time, you've got Intel, which is in this very difficult turnaround. Pat Gelsinger is trying to get that done. They report Thursday this week. All of that is sort of wrapped up in this index. You got some names that, that have really high valuations and some that are being given up as, as uh, you know, yesterday's story. It is really interesting, and it does make the case for active management because you can find different types of setups, both these basing phases, which you could argue that Intel has created, and then also these strong uptrends, new all-time highs in the likes of NVIDIA. And yet uh, we think some kind of barbell type of strategy is appropriate with that in mind, where we have some that look like turnarounds. Another good example of that would be the cloud computing stocks like CRM or the ETF, which is CLOU. Those look like long-term turnarounds, but short-term they are starting to lose some momentum. So we don't know that we have a great entry here, but if we own them, we wanna have that balance with positions that have that long-term upside momentum. Ideally, those like Nvidia that are at or near new highs and reducing exposure, of course, as we see sell signals arise. Now, I don't remember what all is in these indices, but when I'm thinking about cloud stocks, uh, SaaS, enterprise software, uh, Adobe on the one side, which you know ha had dropped quite a bit after the announcement of the Figma acquisition has come back a lot. And then you've also got names like HashiCorp uh, that are recent IPOs, but you know uh, some, some wind has come out of the stock sales there. So similarly, you've got bifurcation right within these indices that probably a little bit unusual. Well, it's interesting when we're seeing these stocks react to earnings, if you see gaps down, that is a negative development and something to respect and at least keep an eye on if you're positioned there. But we're also seeing a lot of breakouts and breakouts have been seeing good upside follow through in this environment. So we would give a chance for many of these names to report earnings see if they can clear resistance on their chart as a case to hold them. And yet we're also watching very closely a couple of metrics from a technical perspective to dictate reducing exposure. And that one would be uh, the 20 day moving averages. It's a really easy thing for folks to watch from home. When the 20 day moving averages start to roll over, we feel like we have enough of a loss of momentum behind that security to dictate at least a reduction in exposure. It doesn't mean you sell the whole thing necessarily, but at least pair back to avoid a significant pullback. And if you look broadly speaking, triple Qs, the SMHs, they all do have the support of the 20 day moving average still. When that changes, we would be somewhat dynamic in our positioning. All right, Katie Stockton, taking stock of the charts. We appreciate it, fairly strategies. Of course. Coming up, the market fully expects the Fed to raise interest rates on Wednesday. But what about the meeting after that? 
Steve Leisman is here with a look at how many more rate hikes might be in store. Plus, Verizon real estate services firm Anywhere and NXP Semiconductor on deck with results. We've got the action, the story, and the trade ahead on Earnings Exchange. As we head to break, let's get a quick check on the markets with the major averages in the green. The Dow outperforming up 200 points. The S&P up about a half a percent. The exchange is back after this. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. The market's ready for the Fed to raise rates this week, but the case for another one or two hikes could come down to, believe it or not, simple math. Steve Leisman here to explain. Yeah, yeah. with some simple math, John. Okay. Let me know if you follow. Uh, it's, uh, it's simple. Get a pen and pencil out. Okay? I got but, it. Yeah. Right, as you said, markets have fully priced in a rate hike this week, but it's skeptical about that second hike, which is forecast by the average Fed official. Of course, we listen closely to the chairman on Wednesday, see what kind of guidance we get. But there's a reason to think the second hike could happen. And you can see it if you do the math and look at the real or inflation-adjusted funds rate. To calculate the real rate, we take the one-year-ahead New York Fed inf- inflation expectations. That's 3.8. Subtract that from the current funds rate. That shows the current real rate is 1.3%, a number I want you to know that only turned positive in February which means the Fed has only really been restraining or positive uh, on the funds rate for about five months now. But the question is, where does the average Fed official want the real rate to be? For that, we look at their own forecast and use their outlook for inflation and the funds rate to do so. It shows they have more work to do by their own reckoning. The average real funds rate forecast for this year, 2.4% declining to 2.1 next year. That's well above what you see there, the forecast for the neutral or long-term rate of 0.5%, suggesting the Fed wants to to put a good amount of restraint on this economy. As you can see from the chart we just showed, the Fed has 100 basis points more work to do if indeed it wants to achieve that forecast for the real rate. Their own forecast sees half coming from a decline in inflation, the other half from a rise in the funds rate. That's how you get more uh, higher real rate. So about half of it from the decline in inflation and another 50 basis points. So that would argue for those two hikes being real. You kind of did the math for us there. It was right there on the It's screen, just simple addition. Yeah, yeah. Or subtraction. Subtraction. It, it seems like, though, this is kind of like how much do I have to put on the brake if the car is coasting, right? Uh, and, and if you think that you're relatively flat or going uphill, well, then you don't have to brake, right? Because the car is going to slow down on its own. But if we're still, if inflation you're still stays go, strong, right, you're right. still go, then you're going to have to put on the brake a little bit more. So that and how would be much one more. more is the question? Guys, can you put up the first chart we had, the calculation, the minus this, minus that? I just want to make sure everybody understands. There's a lot about this whole chart here that's up for debate. 
I didn't talk about it because I want people to understand the math. Mm -hmm. But the first thing that's uh, if, if, there, there it is. Thanks so much, guys. So the current nominal rate, we're not going to debate that. But what do you use for the deflator? 3.8%. Mm -hmm. The reason I'm using inflation expectations, Jonathan, is because the Fed is so into expectations as a thing. And why? Because as Jeff Lacker of the former Richmond Fed president put to me is, what are we asking people? We're asking you, what, why would you save today versus spend today? And that decision, he thinks, is most closely tied to inflation expectations. If I think inflation is going to be X, I need this number for me to save. Yeah. Okay? So that's why. So the, but, but it's like Ghostbusters. What's that? It's like Ghostbusters. Like, what are you afraid of? The Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. Right? If you think about I it, I would not have put it's it in those happen, terms. But right? now that you and, put it there? Yeah, inflation expectations. Boom, there's the inflation, right? right. Because you... Exactly. Yeah. And, but just, uh, just another thing, which is if you look at the real rate, the, the long term neutral rate of 0.5 percent, that's also a question. We don't know if that number should be a little bit higher, a little bit lower. So the Fed kind of gropes its way to understand what the right amount of breaking is for the economy. And that's going to be a matter of debate. For example, if there's a lot of investment in AI. There's a, long, large, a, lo, a, a, a lot of demand for capital, perhaps. That means that people need more money. It means the rate for money could be higher. Right. And if you want to put an end to those hikes, don't think about the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. I think that might be right. Or you get one of those um, plasma th guns. Yeah. Don't cross the stream. Steve Leisman. Thanks. Thank you. All right. The big question for investors is whether two more hikes could derail this rally like a big Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. My next guest does not see that happening because there's too much cash sitting on the sidelines, says investors will be anxious to deploy that. Joining me now, Andrew Slimmon, Senior Portfolio Manager at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. Andrew, um, no Ghostbusters commentary, no more here. It's, it's interesting. Last month you said, despite an overbought market and plenty of reasons for near-term caution, I have a hard time seeing the market correcting much. It hasn't, right? So, so how does the Fed play into that from here? Well, eventually the Fed is going to slow the economy enough that earnings estimates are going to be too high or coming down. But we're just not seeing that yet. <clears throat> and I think a big upside for the market is that earnings growth will inflect from negative in the second quarter to positive in the fourth quarter. And that's going to build some enthusiasm. Now, you can say, hey, next year's earnings estimates are too high. We won't really know that till next year. So as long as companies report in the second quarter in line with what's expected, then I think the earnings estimates for next year will inflect positive and markets tend to put a pretty big multiple on that. And so I think that's to come in the, you know, in the third in going into the fourth quarter. Challenging market because stocks have run so far. So you say that people should average in cash this summer on a monthly basis. That's what you said in the last month's note, right? That, that's right. So last year, I was pounding the table on, you know, in every 5% decline, starting at down, down 15, you got to add to equities. And I felt like an idiot when the market was down 25%. I just don't think you're going to get that fat pitch this year because the number one question I get from people is, when's the pullback coming? I've got cash to deploy. And that's consistent, unfortunately, John, as you know, with coming out of a bear market low, unfortunately, investors don't buy equities. They sell equities. <laughs> and the data su suggests that people have been net sellers of equities since really last summer. And I think that will reverse because to say it won't reverse is to say, 
the fear to greed cycle is not there. So I think once that reverses, you know, that's going to push the market higher. But that's why we're not getting much downside. That's why the volatility is very low, because all pullbacks are viewed as opportunity. Look at the first week in July. We had a little bit of pullback. Boom. The market reversed right away. So I think it's very, very consistent with the early stages of a bull market. I certainly can see the market very overbought. And the high beta stocks, speculative stocks have done very well here. We're going into earnings season with lots of expectations. It gets me nervous. Uh, but I question, given the lack of fund flows, mm. uh, whether uh, there will be much of a pullback. OK, so, so you say we could get another leg higher this fall. But then what about after that? Because fall and especially the end of December has been awfully tricky for the past several years. Almost scarily, consistently, things can reverse. So how should investors position for that and, and what should they watch for? I think it's going to be a good fourth quarter because I think the anxiety of too much cash is going to eventually, investors are going to capitulate and say, I got to get that more invested in retail, institutional, they're underweight in equities. And I think that capitulation will, will push the market higher. Not to mention, again, I think investors put a big multiple on inflecting earnings higher. And if next year's consensus is 245, I think you get a pretty big number. So my biggest worry, and it's really the story of post-COVID. If you look at COVID, investors sold equities all through 2020 into 2021. And then they finally capitulated, caught the last few innings, and then the market sold off the 2020. Mm. I suspect that this will be the same story, which is, this year will be a good year, very, very okay. good year for equities, and it will last a little bit until next year, okay. and then we'll start to worry about a slowdown. I got, I got to admit, I'm a little concerned because, you know, we got Taylor Swift's Eras Tour. We got the Barbie movie. We're awfully happy this summer, so just got to be careful out there. Andrew Slimman with Morgan Stanley. Thank you. Coming up, Xing out Twitter. What's behind Elon Musk's very swift rebranding? And how much will it matter to the user base? We will debate when the exchange comes right back. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. We are near session highs on the Dow, up more than 200 points, and the S&P up about a half a percent. The NASDAQ, though, is the laggard up just a bit, 25 points. Coming up, there isn't a single analyst with a sell rating on NXP Semiconductor, according to FactSet. Is the street too bullish? Ahead of those results, we will ask our trader next in Earnings Exchange. And before we head to break, let's get some show and tell, where we show you a chart, tell you a story. Chevron's leading the Dow after reporting preliminary earnings results. The company says the CFO will retire next year and that it's waiving the mandatory retirement age for its CEO, Mike Wirth. Here's what Mike told Squawk on the Street this morning about Chevron's investment in the Permian Basin. It is the best place uh, for us to be investing our dollars. It's the largest single uh, destination for investment, and we just finished 
a tremendous quarter. We produced more oil out of the Permian Basin the last quarter than we ever have in our history. It's up 10% over the same quarter last year, over 770,000 barrels a day. Uh, our well performance is on track. Uh, we're going to grow this to over a million barrels a day by the middle of this decade. Another good day for the Dow. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson with your CNBC News update. Israelis are protesting the parliament's passage of a bill limiting the power of the country's judicial system. Police using water cannon to disperse demonstrators and dragging away protesters who chained themselves outside parliament. The country's two biggest banks are letting workers protest without losing pay, and some of the largest companies are going on strike there. Unilever says it will comply with legislation that could see its employees in Russia conscripted into the war in Ukraine. In a letter published Sunday, Unilever's chief business operations and supply chain officer said the company would always comply with all the laws of the countries we operate in. The consumer goods giant, which employs 3,000 people in Russia, has faced calls to quit operations in the country following the invasion of Ukraine. And the climate activist Greta Thunberg was forcibly removed by police from a protest in Malmo, Sweden. Thunberg and other activists were blocking the road for oil trucks in the city, and she was charged for failing to leave after receiving police orders. Her arrest came just a few hours after a local court fined her for disobeying a police order during a similar protest last month. John, back to you. All right, Tyler, thank you. And now it's time for Earnings Exchange. Today we have the action, the story, and the trade on NXP Semiconductors, uh, Verizon, and Anywhere Real Estate. Uh, first up, NXP Semiconductors. Shares are up 35% this year. Flat into the print, though, the company reporting a 17% year-over-year bump in automotive revenue last quarter. So investors will be waiting to see if that momentum continued throughout Q2. The chipmaker's China exposure is also going to be top of mind as economic recovery overseas remains slow. But NXP has topped estimates 18 out of the past 20 quarters, recently boosted its dividend by 20%. Let's trade this name and more with Claro Advisors founder and managing principal Ryan Bellinger. Uh, Ryan, okay, NXP, what do you say? Yeah, good afternoon. I think NXP's had a tremendous run here uh, in the last 18 months or so. I mean, it's almost back to where it was in January of 2022, those highs that it had. And uh, so if any of your viewers have been continuing to hold the name, that's great for them. They've almost got all the way back. Uh, they're collecting that uh, about 2% dividend, which is nice. Uh, and as you mentioned, they continue to, to beat on revenue, um, you know, very consistently on the earnings per share basis. They're less consistent. So we're, we're uh, more skeptical of that on, the, on this print. But, you know, I think uh, NXP has got a lot of opportunity. Um, I think investors need, just need to know what it is and what it isn't. Okay. Uh, next up, we have Verizon shares down nearly 8% this month after the Wall Street Journal reported both AT&T and Verizon left thousands of lead-covered cables across the United States in place. In addition to any updates on that situation, the street's going to be looking for guidance on Verizon's consumer segment after it launched a customizable wireless plan just a few months back. Analysts also anticipate the telecom giant is going to set the table for a dividend this fall. Too risky here, Ryan, or an opportunity with the stock down so much? 
Yeah, I think there's some opportunity here still. I mean, it has really had a tough, tough run for Verizon. It is paying almost 8%. Uh, it's one of the only stocks that's actually beating cash. I mean, cash is, you know, you can sit in the cash and get 5%. So finding a stock that can, can pay a, a better dividend than that is really nice. So uh, I like to, to hold on to this one. You can hang out. Uh, you're still collecting more than you would. Uh, the, the problems, you know, with, this, with the lead sheathing cables are going to be tough. I mean, this is an unknown and, and the market does not like uncertainty. So we'll be watching to see what, the, uh, what they say on their call tomorrow morning to see if they address it, what impact they think it might have on future earnings, because it's a very stable cash flow business, which is really nice. Hmm. All right. Finally, location, location, anywhere. Real estate shares up nearly 5% ahead of second quarter results. The real estate conglomerate had a tough first quarter, though, reporting a $138 million loss 31% drop in closed transactions with its franchise group. Anywhere has pledged to cut $200 million in spending by the end of this year. But with housing supplies still sitting near record lows, is there more tough sledding ahead, Ryan? Yeah, I think this is probably a name you want to avoid at the moment. I mean, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the business. I just think secularly, this is a tough place to be where, you know, the, the housing market is uh, not only in the bad market, it's in a really bad market. Um, I mean, interest rates are, have gotten to the point where it's really unaffordable to move. If you're at a home and you've been there and you've got a, a mortgage rate at 3% fixed that's locked in, why are you going to move, you know, uh, unless you have to move? And I think that's what a lot of people are experiencing as a result, there's not a lot of supply in the market. And because of that, these brokerages, they can't turn over houses. You know, they're just not trading them as often as they were. So this stock went from $2 to $20 in, in one of the greatest real estate cycles you had in the last two, couple of years. And I think at this point, you just got to wait and see if, uh, if the housing market can thaw out a little bit here. Because for the time being, I just don't see people moving around as much as they used to. Well, it was at 13 last fall, and it's gone from 450 uh, in March up to about $7 plus right now. You think that run since the spring was overdone, or has it come down enough? I mean, it's not as if people are extra excited about the stock. Well, they are today. It's up 6%. Yeah, I think it's speculative. I mean, it's a small name relatively. It's under a billion market cap. So, you know, this is this is what happens with small cap stocks. So if you're an investor that owns this, you just have to know that uh, you could be in this for a very long time or things could go your way for the next couple of quarters and you could make a few bucks. So I just as a long term hold, I'm not sure this is where I want to be. If you want to speculate, you know, be my guest. All right. So you're saying you might want to flip it. Ryan Ballinger, thank you. Uh, and we will dive into Anywhere's results in an exclusive interview with CEO Ryan Schneider right here on The Exchange tomorrow. Do not miss that. And now coming up, Elon Musk rebranding Twitter to X. That's just the latest step toward his, quote, everything app. So what is next? We will discuss. The Exchange will be right back. Twitter is now X, maybe. Elon Musk rolling out that rebranding this morning, also announcing that X.com now redirects to the Twitter website. It's part of his long-held ambition to create an everything app that combines messaging, social networking, and payments. That is the focus of today's Tech Check with Deirdre Bosa. D, I don't know if I see this sticking. Like, what are people going to say now? I'm going to spend time with my ex? <laughs> I was just thinking that. What do you say? I'm logging on to X. I'm going to send an X. What would be the verb? 
of X. I, I actually have no idea. Um, but, you know, the idea of creating a super app is a wise one. I mean, many companies in Asia have done so, and they've been able to monetize and collect, you know, over a billion users, like in the case of Tencent's WeChat. But it's a lot harder here, John. You know this well. Are the way that the internet has developed and our payment systems make an idea like a super app more difficult? It's not as intuitive as it is in a place like Asia that doesn't have the legacy credit card and debit card systems that we do. So there is major questions around whether Musk can actually succeed in doing this. But the idea of it is great. I mean, you have a walled garden. There's no reason for users to ever leave these apps. You can put users, sellers, and advertisers in one place. The algorithm is trained a little better than having separate apps. I just don't know how likely it is, and that's obviously the biggest challenge that he'll have here. And it doesn't always work, right? I mean, Grab Super App hasn't exactly blown the doors off. Neither has Didi's effort to put together something like this. And then it seems like this conglomerate approach has happened through the ages. I mean, Yahoo, you know, had the, I forget what they called them at the time, what wasn't platform, but, you know, bringing all those things together. Google with all of, of the different apps, Facebook taking Instagram and Facebook and WhatsApp yeah. and Messenger and putting them together with payments. It's just, it's been a user interface issue that maybe people over here just like apps that do a specific thing. Part of the reason all the companies that you mentioned, Yahoo, Google, Facebook, they all started on the desktop, right? So they were developed when companies were still building through a computer, through a PC, whereas the likes of WeChat, right, it grew in, an internet, in a mobile internet era. So they were able to be wider, whereas maybe the companies here, they were just more narrow, right? Facebook existed on your computer, so they're going to put it on a phone. So there wasn't as much opportunity. But I really think it's the payments that is the biggest sticking point. I think you could argue that Grab has succeeded more than anyone has here, um, but it, because those payment system allowed them to. And also, it's largely free. I mean, you have all kinds of fees here in the U.S. that don't really make a good incentive for the companies themselves to put it on a super app. I wonder if Elon ends up then competing with uh, Square, Jack Dorsey again, yeah. who, I mean, who knows how they feel about each other now, Apple and the banks. I mean, as if he doesn't have enough to do. If he can. I wonder if they're scared. I don't know. I don't think Tim I, Cook is scared. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't scare easily, that guy. I mean, <laughs> very, very chill. I admire yeah. that. All right, Deirdre Bosa, thank you. Still ahead, humans deserve the truth. That is the ethos behind AI detection site GPT-0. We're going to talk to the CEO, Edward Tian, about the service's explosive growth, its latest round of funding next. And a quick programming note, CNBC and Boardroom are partnering to bring you Game Plan, a one-day event uh, hosting some of the biggest names at the intersection of sports and business, including Kevin Durant, Stan Kroenke. It's happening tomorrow in L.A. To register or purchase virtual tickets, scan the QR code on the screen, or you can go to CNBCEvents.com. We'll be right back. Welcome back. It's no secret that generative AI has become wildly popular. While it might make some tasks easier, it also raises some serious concerns about ethics, copyrights, even job security. My next guest identified these problems early on, spent last year's winter break building a tool in his Princeton dorm room that detects AI-generated texts. His product is now used by schools like NYU and Purdue, has more than a million registered users since its launch in January. Joining me now is Edward Tian, co-founder and CEO of GPT-Zero. 
Edward, welcome. So you're a journalism minor along with your computer science major. I love that. How much did that factor into uh, your desire to figure out what's accurate and genuine and what's not? Oh, it was absolutely everything in terms of I was on the computer science side doing research with Microsoft, with Princeton's natural language processing app on detecting AI. But at the same time, I was a journalism student. I was taking classes with amazing writers, like New Yorker writers, and everybody was like, wow, like we got to figure out a way to preserve the value of writing. And I previously worked for the BBC as a journalist too. And mm. we were like, oh man, this is going to change the industry. There so, was definitely a combination of the two. So last week, end of last week, there was an agreement brokered by the White House, informal agreement between the likes of Microsoft, Meta, and others to abide by certain principles and actually reveal when things are AI generated. Um, that seems difficult to do though. How do you see it? Yeah, it's a very difficult thing to do. The other key point is, are the really big AI companies incentivize themselves to invest in building the safeguard because their business is not detection, it's generation of AI. And what you see is some of the AI community actually coming to uh, outside startup like us, GPT-0, and say, wow, maybe the big companies aren't incentivized to do it. Maybe we need a third party to be able to build these new technologies. I can imagine a scenario where either built into a device's operating system, built into a browser, you have something that changes the color of something when it was AI generated to sort of, you know, uh, using that intelligence in the background to let you know that perhaps this piece of text uh, was not generated by a person. Why is this important, say, for investors to think about, not just in the stocks that are going to do well at AI, but, you know, information flow and accurate information is so important to investing. How might AI jeopardize that? Oh, well, it's definitely critical for investors or anybody to know, because let's say you're trading off your Bloomberg terminal and now uh, a re recent investigation used GP0 to identify over 500 sites using AI-generated news. Now, these information and pieces are more prone to making up facts. If you trade off false facts, that's costly to your business. That's critical. So then there's an incentive for people to know the truth, not just uh, a moral incentive, but also a business sense as well. So what is your your moat? What is your vision for what the core IP is for GPT-0. I mean, this is, this is a tool, it's gotten popularity, but how are you thinking about the way you wanna build a company on top of and beyond that? Yeah, well, what we have now is integration everywhere in terms of we work with Microsoft to be integrated into Microsoft Word, where you know, we have the extension to be able to detect text that you consume on the web, on your emails, but the future is not just the detection side, what we're building is a live tool for people to prove that they wrote something and verify that they wrote something. And a tool for, frankly, the future, a lot of people are using AI to write, but instead of just letting people write wildly with AI and not citing it at all, how can we make a new platform that incorporates detection, but also verification in terms of, I'm sending you information, here's proof, here's a video, here's everything where every, 
where ChatGPT was used and where I wrote it myself and to preserve the human aspect in writing. So that's what we're building. Next. Do you envision using AI to catch AI, to, to identify it, or even as an interface in a generative way for, so for people to be able to say, hey, can you tell me you know, which of these pieces of content have a higher likelihood of being AI generated and, and actually being able to answer back in a, a conversational generative way? So right now, the generative AI models can't do that. You know, ChatGPT is not programmed to do that. However, yes, the same technologies we're going to use to be able to enhance AI detection. In fact, if you looked at a lot of our investors, they came from an AI background, Altman Capital, Stability AI, because they recognize this whole industry of generative AI actually needs a detection layer. Because if you train new models, you can't be using you know AI text to train your new models. That's going to screw everything up. So there is a lot of uh, overlap between the detection and the generation technologies. A lot like cybersecurity that way. Edward Tian, uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.